stick around for that. Find the appropriate class. There's a, a poster out there that tells you if you need that again. A few weeks back, that week between Christmas and, th- or Christmas and New Year, we were in Oklahoma at my in-law's house. And I went for a run one morning when it was about 30 degrees outside. And I was running down an old farm road, and I was listening to a podcast over my, my headphones. And in the middle of the podcast, the, the people doing the podcast referred to another podcast that sounded a lot more interesting than the podcast I was listening to. And so I stopped there on the side of this old country farm road and started searching my phone, trying to find this new one that I wanted to listen to for the rest of my run. And I'm scrolling down my phone, and all of a sudden, this old farmer in an old farm pickup comes down the road, and he stops, and he rolls down his window, and he said, you're lost, aren't you? And I said, no, no, I'm not, not lost, just trying to find something on my phone real quick. But he made the assumption because I did not look like I belonged there. Right? In the country, country road, guy wearing shorts, 30 degrees. This is kind of out of place here in Warwicka, Oklahoma. So obviously, you're lost. Have you ever been somewhere where you could just simply tell by looking at someone that they probably weren't a regular there, that they probably didn't fit in or they didn't belong there? See, geography goes a long way in determining our identity. Where we are from shapes who we are. You can go to New York. The first time we ever went to New York, we were riding the subway, and I kept bumping into people, and every single person I bumped into, I said, oh, excuse me, I'm sorry, excuse me, I'm sorry. And finally, one person on the subway, we're going to the Yankee game, by the way, which it's just packed with people. You're not from here, are you? <laughs> like, what, what, what gave it away? Well, probably the accent and probably the fact that you're apologizing for every single person you bump into because here in New York City, with all these people, we bump into a lot of people. See, it's our geography that goes a long way into determining our identity. It shapes who we are because where we come from determines how we act and how we behave and how we relate to people. In my life, I've been given a lot of gifts. I'm sure most of you have been given things as well. I started thinking through all of the things that I have been given for free over my 37 years. I think about golf tournaments I've been to where they'll give you little cheap koozies with imprints on them. Or conferences that I've been to where you get a notepad with their name or logo at the top of it. 
or a race that I've done or a run that I've done where they'll give you a t-shirt. We've all been given things. But what determines if those things are valuable or not? What makes a gift valuable? What makes a gift life-changing? Because thinking through all the things that I've been given over the years, most of those, I don't even know where they are today. People give you things and give you things, but what makes it valuable? What makes it costly? And and what it is that determines the value of a gift, what, what is it that makes it Um, immensely valuable in your life or life-changing is when you're given something that is indispensable or costly. The t-shirt, I can go out and buy a t-shirt anywhere. The notepad, I can walk into any store in America almost and pick one up. It's accessible, it's affordable, it's something I can do. But it's when we are given something that we cannot get our hands on on our own that makes that gift valuable. My dad had the opportunity to go to a conference when he was still coaching. And one of the people speaking at the conference was a guy named Mickey Mantle. And my dad went up with a baseball and got Mickey Mantle to sign it. And he went home and he put it on his dresser for everyone to see. And one summer day while he was at work, his seven-year-old son decided he was going to play baseball outside. And he grabbed the ball and he took it outside and he threw it against the house and it dropped in a puddle or two. And the ball was destroyed. A really good friend of mine came up a couple of years ago and said, you know what? I love having this, but I think you would appreciate it even more. And he gave me a Mickey Mantle autographed baseball. And now... The good son. That that was my other brother. I only have a sister, by the way. The good son would have taken that ball and said, Dad, I'm sorry, but I want to give you this gift. I didn't. It's in my office still. But that gift would be indispensable and costly because Mickey Mantle is no longer alive. And it's impossible to get that unless you pay a lot of money for someone else who has gotten one. It's that kind of gift that's indispensable and costly that we value and that we hold on to. 
So Paul is writing in Ephesians, and we're going to pick up Ephesians chapter 2. And he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were dead. You see, an indispensable, costly gift might not look like this koozie or t-shirt or notepad. It might not even look like a baseball. It might look like someone in a third world country who badly needs treatment or an operation who cannot afford it. And yet they have someone else in their neighborhood who took everything they had, went and sold it, and gave that money to them to be able to afford the procedure or the surgery. To make a sick person well. But what Paul says here is not you were sick in your trespasses and sin. He says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. The word paroptima and harmatia. Paroptima means to cross a boundary. It's trespass. To cross a boundary that was set. Harmatia is a word, it's similar to an archery term, to miss the mark. It would be like shooting a bow and arrow at a target or shooting a gun at a deer and missing the mark again and again and again. Some of you hunters will understand that. It's what it means to miss the mark. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Here's where you were. And then he goes on to say, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of the disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So Paul moves from you were once this way, writing to this Gentile church, you were once this way. But now it's we all. He joins himself to these Gentiles. He joins these Jewish believers to the Gentiles. And he said, all of us, all of us were deserving of this because we were dead. And here's the one thing I know about dead people. Dead people are incapable of doing anything for themselves. Dead people cannot do anything to help themselves. And so this is where you were. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. He says, you were dead, you were enslaved, you were condemned. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were enslaved in this world with a different ruler, a different master. You were condemned because of it. This is where you were. 
And what we said last week about love is love asks the question, what do you do on the other side? What do you do on the other side when people do not respond as you wanted them to? When, when God says, I chose everyone before the foundation of the world. What happens when they don't respond as you hope they would? Love asks the question, how do you respond on the other side? And again, Paul says, here's how God responds on the other side. But, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. And it really sounds repetitive here because he uses the word love twice. The first time he uses it as a noun, the second time he uses it as a verb. This great love that God had, this love which he loved us with. Really trying to emphasize what drives this, what drives this passion of what's fixing to happen, what he's going to talk about, was God, being rich in mercy, loved us with his great love. This fully sacrificial, giving, life-breathing love. That is how God loved you. And even when we were dead, next verse, even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ, because by grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Here's what God did. While we were dead, he loved us with this great love so much that he made us alive together with Christ. And you remember in Ephesians, and we read this just a little bit ago this morning, this prayer, that what Paul says is that it's God who raised Jesus from the dead. Verse, chapter 1, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So, so what Paul says is that it wasn't Jesus that raised himself from the dead. It's Jesus that submitted himself in his humanity to death and had to rely on God to raise him from the dead. That this is what God did for Christ. And this is how Christ looked at death. And so he raised us together with Christ He seated us with him. He raised us with him. See, the way Paul sees the world is that there's two ages. There is this present age, the age that we live in, an age that is full of pride and arrogance, an age 
that is filled with idolism, that's filled with malicious thoughts, that's filled with immorality. And then there is this age to come where everything is going to be made right. When God will be at peace with man once again, that the garden will be restored, that shalom, that peace will be there. So there's this present age and there is the age to come. And this age to come began. It began as Jesus died and was raised from the dead. And so what Paul is saying is that just as Christ died and was raised into this new life, from the present age into the age to come, when you and I enter into life with Christ, we move from this present age to the age to come. And it brings with it a really important question. Does your life look like you belong in that place? Does your life match up with someone who is living in the age to come where Christ reigns fully and we are at peace with God? Or does your life look more like someone who is living in this present age? Because what happened when Jesus died and we enter into life, just as God raised Jesus into this new world, into this new life, he raises you into this new life. And he tells his followers now, as you find new life here, live in a way in this present age that makes sense in the age to come. It's as if you've moved. And your geography determines your identity. Where you live shapes and molds who you are. And what that does is it moves us to a place of worship. There was a 17th century Puritan in Britain who wrote a book, and it's a long title. Um, Can you put that on the screen? Thomas Brooks, because I don't... Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Easy to remember, right? He wrote this book... And in this book, he says that our self-esteem comes from looking down on other people. Here's how he says this. He says the poor, he says, I know a lot of poor people, and they despise the rich and the middle class because of their suffering. They say the system has abused me. I've been trampled upon. These people up there think they are there because of their hard work, but I know it is largely luck. 
And as a result of that, he says, very often the poor say, the system has abused me, so I don't mind ripping people off. The middle class, he says, the only reason I have my lifestyle is because I've worked very hard, period. They also despise the rich. Well, they just got really lucky. The poor say the middle class got lucky. The middle class say it was the rich who got lucky. And then he moves on to the rich. And he says the rich look down at everybody and they say, you weren't as smart as I was or you didn't know how to do the investments that I did. And what Thomas Brooks says in this this book is basically that every single person, and this was written in the 17th century, that every single person gets their self-esteem from the way they view other people. Now, whatever category you want to place yourself in, isn't there a little bit of that in every single one of our lives? I mean, don't, and maybe it's just me. If it's just me, sorry. But at times, don't you have a tendency to look at other people? People that you consider a lower class than you. Well, they had worked as hard as I had. Then they would be where I am. Maybe it's just me. But I find myself, I think, a lot of times right where he's writing. And what Paul is going to say is it is so easy in Christ to get to a point where that's how you see the world. where you look at people who are not where you are and think, well, if they would just go to church, if they would be a good Christian like I am. I mean, you can finish the if statement. But what Paul is trying to say is you we're dead. And remember, dead people can't do anything. So what that dead person had to have happen, just as Jesus had to have happen for him, is God had to raise him into new life. And it was simply because of his grace that you have moved from this present age to this new age. Because you had faith and trust in Christ. And so he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Verse 8. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works. So that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we 
should walk in them. He says, you are God's workmanship. The word here, workmanship, is poema. And it means, it's where we get the word poem from. It's a work of art. It, it, essentially, what he says is God created you. He recreated you. He made you a new creation in Christ. And because of that, you have no reason and no place to boast because you did not do it. It it would be like an artist creating this masterpiece and then somehow magically the artwork that was created, that masterpiece, gained the ability to talk and started telling everyone how great it was, how beautiful it was, and how it did all of this to get here. But in essence, that piece of art can't talk about anything that it did. Because the only thing it has is that someone else created it. Someone else imagined it. Someone else dreamed it. Someone else designed the beauty of it. And the only thing that piece of art can do is reflect its maker. That's all it can do. It cannot take credit for its own creation. And so Paul says, listen, you cannot take credit that Christ has gotten you to where you are. It's not because of your goodness. It's not because of your works. It's not because you were here every Sunday and every Wednesday night or every time the doors were open. It's not because of your position or what you did or how you served or what you gave. It's because of none of that. Simply, it comes because you put your faith and trust and entered into a life in Christ and he raised you just as Christ was raised from the dead. You were raised into this new life. You have nothing to do with it. Do you ever find yourself looking at other people who might not be where you are and thinking you know how you could fix their life? I mean, because it's simple, right? If they could just be more like me. And what they need is not to be more like me. They don't need to be more like you. They need a God who is capable of raising them from the dead. And the realization that apart from him, they have no hope. More than anything else, that's what they need. See, but grace, when we offer to other people that grace is risky. 
it is a giant risk. Because to receive grace is either an act of humility or entitlement. You can receive someone else's gracious gift and you can do it from a place of humility where you are thankful and grateful because something that was indispensable and costly was given to you. Or you can receive it in a way that says, I deserve this. And as someone giving grace, you have no control over how the other person will receive it. Have you ever given someone something and the expectation in your mind is here's what they will do with it. And they take it and they use it for something entirely different that wastes it or ruins it or discredits it or throws it away. It would be me taking the Mickey Mantle baseball and going to my dad and say, someone has given me this. But instead of giving it to you as an indispensable or costly gift, I'm going to go back outside and play with it and ruin it. It was given to me so that I could enjoy it even though I had nothing to do with it. But when it is given to me freely, I have the choice in how I will receive it. And the same risk applies for that person giving it. To give grace is to give up power and control over someone, or it is to seek to gain more of it. You can give someone something in humility and love, hoping they will use it for good. Or you can give someone something with all types of strings attached to it and use it to leverage your power and authority over them. And it's all a matter of the heart. I had someone um, fairly recently that gave me a compliment about something. And I didn't respond the way that they thought I should respond. And my question then is, wait, why were you giving the compliment? Were you giving the compliment for me? Or were you giving the compliment for you? One of the things I love about this church is we have so many people in here who are giving and gracious and kind. And I think in here, I think most people 
probably 99.9% when they give, they give because they want to give a good gift to someone. But I wonder when we walk outside of these walls at times, if we don't give at times for different reasons. See, and here our mind is shaped and moved in certain directions. It's outside of here that we have to keep those motives in check. So let's say this. A Christ-like life is a grace-filled life. A Christ-like life is a grace-filled life. And a grace-filled life is a cross-shaped life. It's a place where we receive out of humility. And we give out of humility. Because we understand that everything we have, everything that we are, is simply a gift from God. That it was God who raised Jesus from the dead. And it was God that raised you in Christ Jesus from dead. Today, we don't boast in what we have, but we celebrate this immense gift that we have been given. Because when we understand, when we understand and we see God as he is, it moves us to a place of wonder and awe as we worship him. But that wonder and awe as we worship him leave us to loving others with all that we have and all that we are. And we receive in humility this grace so that we can go out and give this grace. Because what you were created, recreated, made a new creation for, was to go out and do good works so that people would see the reflection of your creator. So this morning, if we could pray for you in any way, we would love to do that. If you need to give your life to Christ and enter into him and be raised into this new life, come while we stand and sing.